0: Thank you for having me. I'm grateful for you, grateful for sovereign grace, and grateful whenever I have the opportunity to open God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, it is no accident that we are here, so let not these moments together be wasted religious activity. I don't know why you have brought us here. Some may. Others may be wondering how we got here, what we're doing at this hour, if we have enough energy to hear a, a sermon. Oh Lord, let us not presume that because we were once touched by the things of Your Word that we have been truly converted. Let us not assume that because we once had an experience with the preaching of Your Word, that our hearts are still tender toward you. And let me not assume that because I have preached before that you will give me the gift once again. We all come to you needy, asking for your grace, that you might give us light, that we may know Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. As we reflect on this topic of faithful, and in particular faithful to proclaim, I want to direct your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6, here's what the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for... Our edification. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God." For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I was ordained as a pastor in 2002, about 11 years ago, and I've been serving at University Reformed Church in East Lansing, Michigan for nine of those 11 years. And when I was ordained, I uh, don't know what the process is like in your tradition, but it's quite a, a long, lengthy ordeal, a lot of hoops to jump through, some of them that were meaningful, some of them that didn't feel particularly meaningful. There's a series of exams at the regional level, and you have to have a call to a church, etc. So it was a big deal uh, to me, not a big deal to too many other people. There were maybe 50 or 60 people there on this grand occasion, but uh, some people from my home church and family and friends. And I, I remember a few things about that occasion, but one of the things that uh, sticks out in my mind, perhaps this is what is most memorable to others who were there, is that afterwards I had a giant ordination cake. I don't know, what do, you, what do you have to celebrate an ordination into ministry? Well, apparently you have a cake. So the, the very nice... Uh, ladies of the church wanted to do something special and they said, well, you're, you're now a pastor, you ought to have a cake. And so they, they made a great, you know, happy ordination, Kevin, uh, could have said Rev Kev if they would have been thinking, but just happy ordination. And they said, do you have a, a life verse we could put on your ordination cake? Well, I'm thinking now oh, this is getting to be a lot of pressure here. What verse do I put on my cake? What verse would be that meaningful? What verse would I, would I be happy to just divvy up and, here's two words for you, and here's a word for you? <laughs> well, I gave them verse 5 of Second Corinthians chapter 4, and I do think in retrospect it was not a bad choice. I've often thought this to myself, both in the high points of ministry and the hard points. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I don't know if I have a life verse. I don't know if you, you need one, but, uh, you know, sometimes the people will ask me to sign books, which is a strange thing, and I never, never get used to that. So sometimes people will bring a Bible I say, I didn't write that. But <laughs> collecting names here. Let me think. Let me think. No, I never blog. I didn't write. did write that one. Um, but people, people will sometimes say, well, "Could you give me a verse? Could you write down your life verse?" I've collected all these people's life verses, and I, I feel a lot of pressure. I don't want to, you know, just throw something out of thin air and find out. Oh man, there some... I did Ezekiel 50, and they're not even get that high in Ezekiel. I'm well, not really gonna. <laughs> So when in doubt, I do this one, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. This is one of my purpose statements for pastoral ministry, and indeed it's how I try to think of my whole life. Many years ago, in fact, it was when I was first starting out in ministry, I wrote on a piece of paper. I just ripped off a yellow sheet of legal pad-sized paper and just wrote down what I thought and I still think it today, are the Lord's goals for me in my life. And I came up with three because I'm a preacher and there's always three. (laughs) To be happy and holy in Jesus, and, and and you're going to find they also have alliteration. One, to be happy and holy in Jesus, to love and to lead my family, and to faithfully proclaim the Word of God. Nothing inspired about that list, but I think all three are biblical, and I think many people in this room, you might, shade what you mean by proclamation and our uh, ways we do it. it might be different whether you're a pastor or a worship leader or a member of the band. But to find yourself happy and holy in Jesus, I would submit to you, is what you need to do before you think you have something to proclaim to others or to lead others. Uh, I I have respect for for people who think this way, but for the life of me, I cannot fathom why they think this way. And this way is that those who do not know Christ and do not have a relationship with Him could be leaders in a church context to lead God's people in the worship of a God that they themselves do not know. I've heard people make those claims, but they're very gifted, and we don't want to be docetists. We want to understand that they have skills, and maybe some of you come to some different conclusions, but for the life of me, I don't see how we can help lead others to make much of Christ if we ourselves are not making much of Christ. Your role may be different than mine as a senior pastor But you would not be here if in some way you were not interested in faithfully proclaiming God's Word, being a faithful minister of the gospel in whatever capacity God gives you. And what I want to talk about in these next moments are what I see is the three, can't think of a good word, M's, because they all start with M, of ministry. I want to talk about the means, the manner. And the message. And this, I believe, should be applicable to you whether you are one of the people in this room who's preaching every Sunday or whether you're leading a Bible study every week or whether you're planning out the worship set every week or whether you're a part of the team and you're the drummer each week. I think this will be applicable to you. The means, the manner, and the message of ministry. First, the means. The means is verbal proclamation. You see this in our text, verbal proclamation. Verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but here's how we do it. By the open statement of the truth, you have the Word and the Spirit working together both in creation the church father Irenaeus said the word and the spirit were like the right and the left hand of god in creating the world and the word and the spirit also working together in the regeneration of the human heart romans 10:17 faith comes from hearing hearing through the word of christ james 1:18 of his own will he brought forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It is by an open statement of the truth that Paul says he is conducting his ministry. And as we'll see later in these verses, it is by this open statement of the truth that people have their eyes opened to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it is not by any other means, but by the verbal proclamation of the gospel. You, you, you cannot preach Christ and use words if necessary. Okay, you've heard that, that slogan before. People say, well, F- St. Francis of Assisi said, uh, preach Christ, use words if necessary. There's only a few things wrong with that. St. Francis never said it. Um, he never exemplified that in his life, and it's not biblically true. Other than that, not a bad <laughs> statement. Uh, The last part is the important part. To preach something, you can adorn the gospel. That's the biblical category. You adorn the gospel with good works, but you must proclaim the gospel with words. You must announce a message, declare a truth. And so if one of the aims, and this is not your only aim, but if one of the aims in your worship service is that sinners might be brought to faith and repentance in Christ, and I pray for this every Sunday, Lord, would today be the day of salvation for some. If that is one of your aims, then you must not simply give a testimony of what Jesus has done for you, but you must point and proclaim what Jesus has done for sinners in dying on the cross. You can't just open a Bible and read a few verses. We must proclaim this message, and you must think of this proclamation not only from the pulpit, though that is central and clearest. But you must think of it as woven in the entire structure and content of the worship service. So we must never think we have sort of warm up and then we have the word, as if the music was not saturated with the word. Could people get saved by the singing in your church? Not could they be moved, could they be saved? Is there enough truth there? to save someone with the singing in your church. We're not interested in just people being stirred, but also being changed. In fact, there is a great danger, there is a great danger if we gear our worship services just that people will be stirred, but not that they have enough truth to be changed. We are actually putting them in a more dangerous place than when they first came to us. Because they are getting inoculated with just a little bit of Jesus, just a little bit of Jesus, just a little bit of religious feeling, just a little bit of spirituality, and they think, oh, that's good. You have to realize that the most privileged place on the planet is to be with the worship of God's people hearing His Word, and the most dangerous place. I just said this to my congregation last Sunday. I said, because you're privileged because you just heard, hopefully, if I'm faithful, the gospel, the Word of God, an open statement of the truth, and billions of people all around this world have no access to it, and you just heard it. And here's the danger. What will you do with it now that you've heard it? You go away, you're hardened, you're stirred, but you're not changed. We must have truth shot through all of the elements of our worship service. Those of you who are responsible for, for choosing songs, leading songs, you must think, what would our people know if they grow up here for 20 years and they move away and they go to college and they don't come back, but we have they're here for 20 years. Usually, most of them are just going to have people for two or three or four years. So if we just have people for this season of time, what will they know about God from what we sing? Are you giving people a theology? Are you giving people an understanding of God and His character and the work of Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit and the creation and incarnation and ascension and exaltation? Are you giving people a diet that allows for uh, not only joy and celebration, but also lamentation and repentance and confession uh, there was a, a great blog post a few years ago uh, by Carl Truman that said, was titled something like, What Shall Miserable Christians Sing? And he was making a case for singing some of the psalms in our worship service. What, what, what do you have to sing when you feel like all hope is gone? Well, there's lots of things you could sing, but the psalms give us the full range of human emotion." The point is that we must be giving people a steady diet of an open statement of the truth that they might know year after year, song after song, service after service, that they will hear this gospel proclamation. People are born again by the seed of the Word of God. That's all that you really have. And if you can do something of lasting significance by some other means, then you're in the wrong profession. Because the only thing we have is the word of God and prayer. And that's what you have on Sunday morning. Here's another song. And you know some songs, it's not like every song is gonna have you know this much depth of theology. You know, you need a steak and then you need jello. I love jello. You mix in ice cream in it and makes that little layer there. It's just magic. I serve it to people. How'd you get the layer? I, Mick oh, got up in the middle of the night for you and try it. Ice cream in gel. It's wonderful. One of the privileges of growing up in a Dutch household is that jello counted as our salad. It's really wonderful. <laughs> in fact, the first church that I served at this was just an eye-opener in Iowa. People would say, "Oh, do you want some snicker salad?" Well, what's Snickers salad? That sounds a little strange. Well, it's actually just kind of Cool Whip and pudding with Snickers. Not a lot of salad, but if that's how you roll, yeah, I'm on a diet. Give me more salad. Okay, so so some some songs are are simple. There's a place for a simple scripture song, for just an expression of. Love to the Savior, or Father we glorify you, and Son we glorify you, spirit we glorify. So you're not giving the same kind of depth of truth in every song, but every song must be true, and you must think over the scope of a service and over the scope of your ministry, are you telling people enough that they might be convicted of their sins, they might know who God is in His character, and they might understand the way of salvation? Are you sowing seed? That's what we do, just sow seed. That's why you have to be faithful because you don't know. You don't, you don't know what the soil is that morning. You don't know, is this falling on rocky ground or is it thorns or shallow soil? Where is it going? But you remember, of course, the parable of the sower and the soils. And you think sometime, this, this sower, he's quite a profligate sower. It doesn't even seem very intelligent. Okay, we've all heard the story. Why is seed landing on the stony path? You want to say to the sower, dude, that's just a waste. Like, you're just walking on that path. They would have these, you know, these little stone brick pathways in between the field, and then walk down there, and you think, what? can't you just go like that? What, what are you just dropping... <laughs> The seed here, and then there's there's thorns, and he's just (laughs) there's rocks, and there's some beach sand, and okay, and (laughs) what are you doing? I I think that's part of the picture. You you don't have to be discriminating in where you throw the seed. Just keep sowing. Just keep sowing. Isn't that what Dory said in Finding Nemo? Just keep sowing. Just keep (laughs) sowing just just keep sowing it out. But, but then you've got to think through your services and your prayers and your preaching and your songs. you sowing out that seed or are you sowing out something else. And I love what, what Paul says here and it has, I hope, shaped my own view of ministry and should sh- shape yours. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, literally the hidden things of shame. He says, I have no ulterior motives. Uh, There's nothing I'm trying to keep hidden. We're not scamming for dollars. We do not practice cunning. He says, "The, the way of the world has one way of declaring this message, and we have another because the Greeks loved orators. They loved rhetoric. They loved people who knew how to put words together, draw a crowd, sound smart, look impressive. They knew how to shape their message and their language. The orators were the entertainers of their day. It's hard for us to think of that. We live in such a, a visual kind of culture. But these were the people that you went to hear, to see, and what they could do with their rhetoric. And Paul says, I have no interest in preaching like that. It's not that Paul wasn't smart. It's not that Paul couldn't preach. It's not that Paul was opposed to everything in Greek culture. He knew their poets. He understood the times. But when it came to preaching… He was decidedly countercultural. We must pay attention to Paul's example here before we are quick to say, well look, we live in a visual culture. People can't take discourse anymore. They won't listen to monologue. They need movies. They need entertainment. Uh, I had somebody when I was first coming to this church, a Ph.D. student who asked me, I said, "So." are you going to continue with this modernistic, monological, hierarchical form of communication and preaching? Are you open to more dialogical, participatory, conversational, postmodern forms of communication? <laughs> it's almost like exact quote. And uh, I just said, said, if you mean, am I going to preach for 45 minutes while everyone else listens to it. Yeah, that's what I plan to do. (laughs) Not because I'm so special, but because there is power in the preached Word of God. This is… Calvin would use this language both for Scripture and for preaching. He said, May God open His most hallowed lips. Every Sunday, I hope there's some moment where… Kevin becomes invisible, and people are hearing the voice of the shepherd calling to them. They're hearing their God. We must not think we are smarter than God. He did understand our need for visual supports. And so sometimes people say, well, look, We need visuals, right? We need something that we can taste, that we can touch, that we can see. It helps our faith. I say amen to that. Let's go to the Bible. Jesus gave us two things just like that, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that He might nourish our faith, that He might prop up our faith, that He might give us something to see and to taste and to touch. The Word of God is a profoundly auditory event on this side of heaven. Our experience with God is profoundly one of hearing. The faith has not yet become sight. We do not practice cunning, Paul says. We do not tamper with God's Word. This means that for Paul, however much he wanted to contextualize, it, he did at times, however much he wanted to Uh, speak in a way that they could understand Him, and He did, yet Paul understood the audience is not sovereign. The Word is sovereign over your audience, over the congregation, not the other way around. The Word determines the message, not your anticipated response to the Word. That does not shape the message. So my job as a preacher and your work in whatever capacity you are proclaiming the Word of God is to give people what God has said, which may or may not be what they want to hear. Now, yes, there is a way to do it winsomely and a way to do it obnoxiously. Let us try to be the former, not the latter. But oh, God gave us proclamation for a reason. And it is always the case that a distaste for proclamation goes hand in hand with a distaste for the authority of God and His Word, because what was it about Jesus that so shocked them? The scribes and Pharisees, they had heard them, and they said, this Jesus, wow, this is amazing, because He speaks, and He is wicked smart. Is that what they said? This Jesus man, he's a hoot. He's hilarious. Is that what they said? This Jesus just, man, he just connects. He speaks as one who has authority and not like the scribes or the Pharisees. The Word of God is sovereign. We don't cut out miracles because people can't believe in miracles. We don't disown the sexual ethics in the Bible because the highest court in our land thinks that we are hateful if we do not. We do not get rid of hell if it turns people off. We do not do away with sin because it hurts self-esteem. We do not throw out the uniqueness of Christ because it does not fly in today's world. People do not need a watered-down Christianity. They need a loving Christianity but we must understand that certainty and authority is not antithetical to love and to mercy. We do not revile when we are reviled. See, this is is what we're going to have to learn to do as Christians in this world. How do we, on the one hand, show unfailing courage And yet, when we are reviled, we do not revile in return. We consider it a light thing, like Jesus, who despised the shame. That doesn't mean He just hated the shame. It means He counted it as worthy of nothing, as considering little regard. He despised their shame. And lots of shame will come upon those who follow and proclaim the Word of God. And what do we do with it? We change it. We hate people who shame us. We say, I cannot help but to teach and to say what the Word of God has said. And by an open statement of the truth. You know what boldness is? Boldness is not a personality. Boldness is not a kind of bravado. Boldness is is to be clear in the face of fear. And we will surely have many opportunities to do so. To be clear in the face of fear. Paul says, by an open statement of the truth, here it is. And I think people are longing for this. Would you just tell us what you believe? What the Word of God says? When I, when I think of myself on, on Sunday, you know, a pitcher, and there's the catcher, and you know, whatever finger he puts down, unless it's a fastball, I just sort of wave him off. No, no, no. The heater? Okay, yeah, all right. And that, that's, that's just what I got. Okay, here it comes. Straight down the middle. Here it is, coming at you. This is not the time for subtlety, but an open statement of the truth. Clarity is king. This is why, and perhaps I'll get myself into some trouble here, but why come all the way across the country and not do a little of that? This is why art, the the, the thing, not the the guy, if there's any art here, but (laughs) art makes bad preaching. Now listen, poetry makes bad preaching, movies make bad preaching because they deal with subtlety with reading between the lines, with picking up nonverbal cues, none of which is bad. In fact, it's appropriate to that medium. I don't know a lot about art, but the artists I've met don't generally want you to, to look at their sculpture, look at their work, and take about ten seconds and so I know what that's about. I totally get that. You want me to You want me to repent of my sins and give my life to Christ? I get it. <laughs> no. Because that's not how art works. Art works with such a good movie. You get done and, and you talk about it. What do you think that meant? And why did that happen? And what's going on? And what, and what do you think that imagery? And then that scene was really dark. And then, and then there's like this sort of flashback came in. And that's what makes a movie rich and layered and textured. And we need that. But you don't want somebody leaving your worship service going, Man, what was that all about? Whoa. <laughs> That was so weird, and I was like, and then there was a song and then another song, and it didn't make any sense, but I was like, wow, man, there's something really deep going on here. <laughs> it's appropriate in poetry to to take, you know, 15 times through to try to understand what it's saying. That's what makes poetry good. If it's just, you know, you go through once and it rhymes, and eh. But with with word on Sunday morning, clarity is king by an open statement of the truth. Use all of those other cultural forms during the week, and let's pray for all sorts of Christians who are good at them, so you can take people to all those other kinds of uh, media and art, and, and people can scratch their head and open doors to all sorts of great conversations. But on Sunday morning, we ought to know what we are saying. People ought to understand There's too much hand-wringing, too much whining, too many calls in the church to change everything right now, okay? Just, you'll live long enough, and you'll see it, you know, probably three times over yet in our lifetimes, a whole series of books, change or (laughs) die, the church. Now, listen, there's always a little bit of, well, not always, sometimes there's a little bit of truth, okay, we, all right, Yep. we've been been jerks or something, or boy, we, we, we missed something. But, you know, it, this is why if you stick to the basics, it's just a lot easier. If you, if you just, you're, you're preaching the Word, you're singing the Word, you're praying the Word, and you're showing the Word in the sacraments, okay? That's, that's going to be pretty transcultural, pretty relevant. And uh, then when people come around and say, we've got to change everything we're doing, say, well, what's, what's the problem out there? Well, the problem is still that people are sinners, Okay. What's the solution? Well, we have a Savior. Okay. How do they know about Him? Well, we tell them. Okay. So a lot of things haven't changed, have they? <laughs> we still must present by an open statement of the truth this Christ, this good news. This is the means. Now, if you go back to verse 5 in particular. You see in the first phrase, the means, what we proclaim is not ourselves. And then at the end, you have the manner, but ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And this is how we are to be this people of the Word. Paul often talks in his letters about being a servant of the Lord, a slave to Christ Jesus, Here, he says, a little bit different. Not just I'm a servant or a slave to Christ Jesus. Here he says, I'm a servant to you, Corinthians. Do you pastor? Do you worship leader? Think of yourself as a servant of Christ first and the congregation second and your own agendas nowhere to be found. That's a pretty good recipe for a good leader on Sunday morning. There's a lot of things you can teach, a lot of skills that you can gain, but you have to get those two priorities right. You know, we we don't want to prove true all of the stereotypes about, you know, the conflict between pastors and worship leaders or uh, all the prima donnas. We just, we, we want to just blow up those kind of stereotypes. I had a professor in seminary. He loved to tell the joke. He loved to tell the joke. See if you think it's funny. Uh, What's the difference between a terrorist and a worship leader? You can negotiate with terrorists, okay? (laughs) That I think you'll see is not in keeping with the spirit of verse 5, the one leading on Sunday morning, in whatever capacity, must always understand himself to be, first of all, a servant. Whatever titles or honorifics they may give you, whatever sign they put on your door, whatever moniker they put by your name in the bulletin, we must always remember that we are servants of the servants of God. St. Gregory the Great, in his book, The Book of Pastoral Rule, says this he's thinking in particular about pastors, but it would be true for other kinds of leaders in the church. He says that those who preside over others should consider not their rank, but the equality of their condition. They should not they should revel not in ruling over others, but in helping them. For indeed our ancient fathers are not remembered because they were rulers of men, but because they were shepherds of flock, often a pastor, a leader swells with pride by virtue of being placed in a position of authority over others. And it happens that while he is encircled with immense favor, internally he loses his sense of truth. Could that not be written about so many churches in our land? He goes on, "...forgetful of who he is, he scatters himself among the voices of others." and believes what he hears them say about him rather than what he should discern about himself from within. Such was the case of Saul, the king. He had previously seen himself to be of little consequence, but after he received temporal authority, he began to think of himself greater than everyone else. In a wonderful way, when he was small to himself, he was great to the Lord. But when he thought of himself as great, he became small to the Lord." It's like that story of King Uzzah, who was this fabulous king and he's doing all these things, he has these military success and reforms, and then there's this haunting line. It says that the king was marvelously helped until he became strong. And that is a word of warning to anyone who will have the audacity to step in front of God's people and lead them." There is much help awaiting us when we know that we are small, and there is much danger when we think that we are great. Paul did not present himself as the apostolic Lord over the Corinthians, but as their servant. He was not interested in a personal following or a personality cult. He was not in the ministry for fame or money or contracts. He was not a preacher so he could ride his hobby horse and announce all of his pet peeves. His goal was an open declaration of the truth. His goal was to preach Christ, not to preach Paul. So please have the humility if someone has to say to you, or your pastor maybe has to say to you, look, I, I, I know your heart in that. I just want to say the way you did that riff, or the way that thing went on, or the way you kind of went back to the piano slide again, okay? It, it, was, it was making much of you, I think, even that probably wasn't your heart, more than it was helping people to make much of Christ. The goal should not be that people listen to the music on Sunday morning and think, wow, those were amazing musicians. In fact, if you're doing your job, you're sort of getting out of the way so that the congregation's voices can be heard. Because, listen, if you want to do the hard—and I mean this seriously, because I, I love music. I was in choirs, and, and I was in marching band and lots of other cool things, and <laughs> I played the French horn. And, and so some of you may be really music, and you've got a passion for, for music, and you want to do the hardest— Stuff and just <clears throat> and go for it, but but listen, that's not what you're going to do in leading a congregation in singing, because to get a hundred or, or three hundred or three thousand people to all be singing the same thing, in the scheme of things, it has to be relatively simple rhythm, melody. Now, don't get me wrong; there's tons of skill in what what these people are doing back here, tons of skill in what Bob does to be able to to play. And so, don't think your skill is going to be. Wasted at all, but just don't think that is going to be evident, uh, if you want it to be evident, and there could be good reasons to do so, it's just not going to be a Sunday morning worship service, where by the nature of the kind of gathering that it is, uh, it's going to be a simpler, a more straightforward kind of approach. Paul was not interested in preaching Paul but Christ. I think of John the Baptist's famous confession. John 1 verse 20 says he confessed. They're coming up to John the Baptist and saying, okay, who are you and what should we expect from you and are you the the Christ or not? And it says he confessed and he did not deny, but he freely confessed. I am not the Christ. Let that be your great Humility and your great freedom. You get up there to preach, you get up there to lead. You are not the Christ. You're not the Christ. You, John says, I'm a part of the bridal party, but, but the bride is the church, and here comes the groom. And, and, and when the groom comes down the aisle, and there's the bride waiting, do you want the best man? Making nice eyes at the bride. You know? You know, dude, that's not what you're here for. You're, you're here for nothing, just not to faint. <laughs> Maybe to hand me my ring, but I don't even trust you that, so I gave it to the girl over here who doesn't even have pockets, and she's holding them. So just, you're, that's not what you're here for. If you think, but some of us act like that, here's my chance to kind of, a you little know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the bride here. Take a look at me. and look at Jesus, but take a look at me. You're not the point. You're a pointer. I must decrease, He must increase. Jesus is the main attraction. Amen. Reminds me of the old saying, "No man can give at once the impression that he is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save." You do not want people to walk away thinking, "My." Is he gifted? Boy, is she smart. You would hope that they would leave more with the sense that Jacob had in Genesis. Surely God was in this place. Better than, what a wonderful sermon. And I I know people, I don't have a problem with people saying that. In fact, some weeks, could you please, anybody? (laughs) But, But even better than that is to say, oh, pastor, oh, worship leader what a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Savior we have. Calvin says, he that would preach Christ alone must of necessity forget himself. Our aim is not to proclaim ourselves, but to be servants. How would it change your relationship with others on your team, with others on your pastoral staff, with members of the congregation? If you came back this week and you said, my attitude is to be a servant to be your servant, and I'm not here to proclaim myself, my agenda, to get my way, but to be a servant that the body of Christ might be built up, Christ might be glorified, and the truth might be proclaimed with an open, clear statement. And then finally, the message Jesus Christ is Lord. We see that in the end of verse, middle of verse five. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, we know that Paul preached the whole counsel of God, so don't think this was the only thing he ever said. It was Jesus is Lord. But it could be used as the summary of his apostolic preaching. We know in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, "'When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified.'" He did not preach a vapid moralism, he did not preach a nebulous spirituality, he did not come to preach his doubts and misgivings, he did not come to entertain, but to preach Jesus Christ and call them to faith and repentance. The message we proclaim in our preaching, in our singing, in our praying, in our administration of the sacraments or ordinances is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, every other aspect as well, but this is central. Why is it that when you have the bread and the cup, and I don't know if your pastor does this, but I, in our liturgy, uh, I always say the words of institution. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body for you. And in the same way, after having supper together, he took the cup and And he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Have you ever thought about what a strange thing it is? Of all the things we could be proclaiming, yet every Sunday where the Lord's Supper is celebrated, to everyone in that room and to everyone in the world who cares to see it, you're proclaiming. Jesus died. Jesus was crucified. Jesus slain for sinners. Paul did not go into Corinth and tell the people, I resolved to do nothing but to preach mission, or to preach unity, or to preach my stump message on giving, or to preach about transforming the culture, but to preach Christ crucified, Christ raised, Christ as Lord. That was the message. And we too must proclaim that same message. Is it being heard loudly in what you are singing, in what you are saying? Are you proclaiming this message of Christ so that the light of the knowledge of God may be seen in the face of Christ. Do you see here, there's not time to go into it in detail, but to see throughout these verses the theme of light. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing because they've they've had their eyes blinded. Now, yes, I know sometimes Christians can get in the way of the truth, and sometimes we're obnoxious about it, or sometimes our lives don't adorn it. But listen, there comes a point Where you say, I know they don't hear it. I know that they hate it. I can't make blind people see. God makes blind people see. Genesis 1. God said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke and it came into being. It is by the proclamation of the Word that the people on Sunday morning in your congregation will have the spiritual gift to see the gospel of the glory of Christ, the savoring of Christ, the spiritual tasting of the sweetness of the gospel. Christ in His irresistibly glorious self, in all of His diverse excellencies, His tenderness and compassion and power and wisdom and humility and mercy and strength and glory and suffering and conquering, will they hear it in every song, in every sermon, so much so that the only explanation that they would not be enamored with Christ week after week after week of hearing this Christ proclaimed? The only explanation is that their eyes must be blind. We cannot help whether people see or not, but we can give them the truth to see if they will have eyes to see it. To give them Jesus Christ, not the Jesus that our culture would be happy to give, not just a kind of nice, you know, guru who does a lot of good things in the world and helps people out and then goes back at night and just, you know, plays checkers up in heaven or something with the angels and just says, aw shucks a lot. That kind of Jesus doesn't do anything, doesn't do anything to offend people, doesn't do anything to save people. But if we give this Jesus and we sing about this Jesus who is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ and we proclaim this Jesus, well then then they may just see things they haven't seen before. See Christ in creation, all things created by Him and for Him and through Him. Christ prefigured as the one who would crush the serpent's head, as the chosen seed of Abraham, as the snake lifted in the desert, as the scapegoat on the day of judgment, as the one in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. They will hear of him, the one the prophets predicted, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the prophet like Moses, the king like David, the priest like Melchizedek, Will they sing of Him and hear of Him in His incarnation and leaving the glories of heaven, being born of a lowly virgin, coming to be with us to assume our nature, though He was the radiance of God and the exact imprint of the divine nature? Will they know of Him in His teaching, confounding those who would try to trick Him cutting to the heart of those who would hate Him, teaching as one who has authority. Will they know of this Christ and all His miraculous power to calm the sea and to walk on water and to cause the lame to walk and the blind to see, turning the water into wine, bringing the dead back to life? Will they know of this Jesus and His compassion who wept when his friend Lazarus died, who loved the children, who listened to the loveless, who befriended the friendless, who served his disciples, washed their feet, when he knew that in a manner of hours they would all desert him. And will they see the fullness of his glory in his suffering, that this Christ knew hunger and thirst, knew what it was to be tired and disappointed and betrayed and tempted, And in all his ministry faced almost constant accusation, rejection, misunderstanding, and never once hated those who hated him. He was turned over to the police by one of his close friends, brought up to trial on trumped up charges and false witnesses, felt the whip on his back and the thorns in his scalp and felt the nails in his hand and knew what it was to gasp for one last breath. And will they see this Christ in his glorious death on the cross? Sustaining in body and soul the wrath of God against sinners? Will they see in his dying breath how he looked out for his mother and prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies and even cried out with his own God-forsakenness? Will they see him who was crushed for our sins, bruised for our iniquities, the curse that was due us upon his shoulders? And will they know of this Christ who three days later rose again from the dead because, it says in Acts, that the grave could not hold Him. It had no claim over Him. The Wages of sin is death, and that penalty had been paid for. It was not just the conquering of death. It was the obliteration of death. Death had no claim over the Son of God, and so He rose. Will they see that Christ, the Christ who ascended into heaven, and will come come back to judge the living and the dead? Will they see this Christ, this eternally now, for all time, incarnate Son of God? Yes, a man sits at the right hand of God even this night. Will they see Him there with wounds still visible, sitting down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, who together with the Father sent His Spirit, now lives to make intercession for us, and because of Him, God freely gives us all things. Do you sing of that Christ? Speak of that Christ? Savor that Christ? It is not at all a bad thing if some of you would leave here and feel just a little little tweak. I don't know that we're giving anything like that Christ. I don't think our songs are presenting anything of that Christ. That is the Christ that the world needs to see, and it is when that Christ is proclaimed that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, may shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.